You know, Tom, I've always felt that you were kind of a caricature of a human being, but it's kind of odd seeing it come true, literally. <laughs> the Constitution occupies a weird place in American life. We all are taught to revere it. On national holidays, people salute it. And yet it's almost non-existent in our conversations about what government should do, shouldn't do, what's good, what's bad. There it is in the background, but that's where most people want to leave it. Now, you'd think having a constitution in writing would mean it'd be really easy for everyone to agree what it says. Just read the parchment. Well, as a matter of fact, the entire American Revolution really revolved around constitutionality. And the trouble there was the British Constitution was unwritten. The British Constitution was a collection of documents. It was customary practice, the way things had always been done. And the colonist view was that if the British government starts reaching for powers that it's never exercised before, then it's breaking with the way things have always been done. And so it's violating the British Constitution. When Parliament was saying we're doing things traditionally, they also meant, well, we're going to keep changing what that tradition means. So it's like this. Let's suppose I bring you over my house for a traditional Thanksgiving dinner. Sure, we got a turkey, but it's made out of tofu. And then for the side, we got mashed potatoes. They're not cooked, but boy, did I mash them. And a nice, delicious bowl of cranberries, unsweetened, because we know sugar's bad for you. So this is why the early Americans were so against this use of tradition. They wanted to know what they were getting when it comes to the government. And that's why it was so important for Americans to write the Constitution down, because they felt like the British Constitution, figuring out what that meant, was like nailing jelly to a wall. I've often thought that there have been times it would be helpful when I'm playing poker to play a living, breathing poker game so that I've got a pair of deuces, somebody else has a full house, and I say, well, look, sorry, this, these rules are living and breathing. You're living in the past, man. Pair of deuces wins automatically. Nobody would ever want to play again. You can't run a society like this. It was just as William Brennan who really popularized this term, the living constitution. And the implication of it was that if you don't want the constitution to just change with the times, then you're some ignorant idiot living in the past. And there have been many, many times the constitution has changed with the times via the amendment process. The overwhelming number of them have been highly bipartisan, because you need two-thirds of the Senate votes and you need three-quarters of the states. And anyone can rattle off what those changes are. Voting age, term limits to the president, popular election of senators, allowing women to vote. So yeah, when times change, the process has been in place. And not only to have the amended constitution, they've unamended it after prohibition when they saw that that didn't work. And of course, you can very easily see who would look to the constitution as a living document because it's people who didn't like what it had to do in the past. Now... They want to change it, but they don't want to do all the work that went into changing it. The thinking behind the living, breathing Constitution is that the amendment process is too slow and clunky. we got a big agenda of things we want to do here. So it would be better to just say, well, look, yeah, we know the Constitution doesn't authorize this. So let's just let's let the judges kind of decide how we apply the Constitution to our modern life. If a large part of the Constitution is meant to limit the powers of government, to have those government officials rewrite what those limits are and say, oh, handcuffs? Yeah, let's just make those out of spaghetti. Oh, you want to lock me in the cell? Yeah, let's make it out of candy and I'll eat my way out, Hansel and Gretel style. It's very convenient for them 
if they're the ones who get to rewrite what the limits are on their own power. As a matter of fact, a living, breathing constitution is really a dead constitution. Because if it can change at the whim of the government, then what kind of a bulwark is it going to be in defense of your liberties? It can't defend your liberties if it can constantly be changing. So it's not living, it's dead. All right, Michael, let's bring this down to earth. Let's look at a specific example of how the so-called living, breathing constitution works. And that's what they've done to the general welfare clause. General welfare is referred to twice in the constitution, in the preamble, and then in Article One, speaking about the federal government providing for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. Think about it. Is there any dictator who ever lived who couldn't have said that what he was doing was for the general welfare? This is no kind of limitation on power, if that were what the general welfare clause meant. But it didn't mean that. James Madison was very clear about this. He said, the fact is, the Constitution lists the powers the federal government has. If it could also then do whatever it thought was good for the country, it wouldn't have bothered making a specific list. The General Welfare Clause means that when you are engaged in the powers we've given you, make sure you exercise those powers with an eye to the general welfare, what's good for the whole country. Here's a good way for people to look at the General Welfare Clause. Let's suppose I say, Tom, can you do me a favor? And you go, of course, Michael, you're a great guy who I admire and aspire to be like one day. I'll be glad to help you in any way I can. All right, so Tom, I got this fridge and I need you to help me bring it up to my apartment. Well, okay, that's not a problem. We all need to keep our food cool, as cool as you, Michael. And I say, okay. I also need you to do those dishes because they've been in that sink for quite a while. Gotta make some phone calls on my behalf. I'm a very busy man. And I need you to walk my dog. And I also need you to get a dog for me to walk. The idea that the general welfare clause means anything you want it to be is like saying, well, let me ask you for a favor. But then that favor ends up being something a little more complicated than just a favor. Now, how did the General Welfare Clause come to have this enormous, expansive meaning? We can trace it back to a justice from the 1830s, Joseph Story, who said that the federal government can tax for the general welfare, that taxation is one of the powers, and then once it has the money, it can apply that money to whatever it, more or less, what it thinks uh, conduces to the general welfare. And eventually, the Supreme Court in Helvering versus Davis, 1937, tried to codify that into law. So in other words, saying that the general welfare clause can more or less be a giant blanket covering every conceivable area of American life. The Republicans at one point had a constitutional caucus, and the point of this constitutional caucus was they're going to explain the constitutional backing for every bill that was being put forward in the House. So Tom, you watched Scooby-Doo when you were a kid, right? Who didn't? Okay, I'm sure you related very much to Velma. I guess I didn't watch it. Well, Velma was the smart one, and she was always the one solving a mystery. And a lot of the times... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's the one I identified with, yes. So this Constitutional Caucus sat down, just like the Scooby-Doo cast, and they said, all right, let's figure out who's behind this bill that we're going to pass. And they take off the mask, and the answer is, oh, the General Welfare Clause. It's always the General Welfare Clause that justifies their bills. In fact, it's not a mystery at all. This clause has been behind pretty much every bill whenever the federal government tries to do something that the constitutionalists never even thought they would have the power to do or even to think to ask for. It has been putty in the hands of people who want there to be no limits on government power at all, so I say take the putty away from them. This isn't just something to discuss in some kind of ivory tower way. 
The General Welfare Clause is an example of how the so-called living, breathing constitution affects all of our lives. Well, Michael, if there's one thing today people don't like about the Constitution, it's the Electoral College. Why, we should abolish the Electoral College. Why shouldn't the person who gets the most votes be elected president? What, do we hate democracy? Well, the person who gets the most votes is the one who gets elected president, but it's just not the popular votes. It's the votes of the electors, and the Founding Fathers did this very consciously and very intentionally. And these days, the way it works is we have a vote, and in each state, whoever wins the popular vote simply wins all the electoral votes of that state. Think about the Electoral College like the World Series. It's the Mets versus the Red Sox, and let's say the Mets win the first three games, 10 to nothing, 10 to nothing, 10 to nothing. And the Red Sox win the last four games, 1 to nothing, 1 to nothing, 1 to nothing, 1 to nothing. So who won the series? The Red Sox. They won four games. But nobody would be taken seriously coming along later and saying, but let's add up the absolute number of runs they scored across the series. Why, New York scored 30 and Boston scored only four, so New York is the real winner. We'd think this person was a lunatic because that has nothing whatsoever to do with the World Series or baseball or anything. America is a collection of societies. It's not a big blob. In the Constitution, the United States is consistently referred to in the plural because that's what we are, a group of societies. So the question is, how many of those societies, or how many games, in effect, can you win? And think about it this way. Suppose you have a restaurant, and you have soup, and you have steak, and you have key lime pie. I do like my key lime pie. And if you separate those out, it's a delicious three-course meal. But if you put them in a bowl and mix it together, that's not going to improve the experience for anyone. And that's what people are trying to do when they attack the Electoral College. A person in Rhode Island matters as much as a person in California. And they want to put it all together in a big blender is their argument. People are trying to act like this is them being magnanimous. No, 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 no. You can see who benefits from this because it's people in California, people in New York, and maybe one or two other states. And it's like, great. Between them, they have enough electoral votes to run the whole countries. And the other 47 or 48 states can lump it or leave it because New York and California are going to dictate for the entire nation. It's like a cultural thing. You can't tell someone who lives in a farm, hey, you need to take the subway to go to the store to pick up feed for your horse. Their lifestyle is entirely different, and the federal government has to represent all these different lifestyles, which would be lost if it was just a matter of the popular vote and each state didn't matter one from another. In the same way, I'm not getting a horse to go down the coffee shop over in Williamsburg. It's not going to happen. And I'm not going hunting because there's no deer to be had in Central Park. The Electoral College part of it was designed so that people in big cities can't just look at people in sparsely populated areas and say, you know what? You don't matter. There's more of us than there are of you. So it's not just that we're going to have more of a voice. We're going to be the only ones with a voice. All right, so let's see. We've somehow managed to cover the Electoral College, the General Welfare Clause, and the Living, Breathing Constitution and thereby created the anti-schoolhouse rock. This is the opposite of what I learned in my civics textbook and probably the opposite of what people are learning all over the country at this very moment. Tom, let's be honest. If the Constitution were living and breathing and walking down the street, the first thing we would do is to shoot it. Well, how do you think that went? I think it went well, Tom. Why are you so stressed about this? I'm not stressed out. It's just 
you know, I'm the one holding up the whole thing, and it's, it's a lot on my shoulders here. You're a modern-day Atlas, Tom. A four-foot, 11-inch Atlas. <laughs> gotta climb a lot of steps to get to the Supreme Court building here in Washington. But I wonder who that sad little scrap of paper is. Hey, it's me, Michael. Tom? Are you a bill? Just a bill sitting here on the Supreme Court building steps? I ain't no bill. I'm a law boomer. Wow, the Supreme Court the impartial guardian of our liberties. Where would we be without it? The presidency, Congress, they'd be running roughshod all over our freedoms. Thank you, Supreme Court. No, no, everything you just said is wrong. The Supreme Court is highly political, and most of what it does is by omission. It sits back and lets the federal government get away with pretty much whatever it wants. Tom, I don't know that much about the Supreme Court. I was always taught that it's an impartial guardian of American liberties, and it's the branch of government that keeps the other two branches in line. Actually, Michael, all three branches of the federal government have a responsibility to uphold the Constitution. But today we have this superstitious reverence toward the court, as if the court is uniquely positioned to protect us against abuse. Hold on. The Supreme Court is not like the other two branches. They don't campaign. They're not politicians. They don't have a vested interest in an individual bill passing. They're there for life. So they're not subject to partisanship. And it has the word supreme, which means above the other two. So you're basically repeating this comforting myth that we're all taught, but there is absolutely nothing to it. And remember, too, Thomas Jefferson taught that what we have in America is called concurrent review, that all three branches have a responsibility to uphold the Constitution. And even James Madison in the report of 1800 that nobody reads anymore, says that in the last resort... What does he mean, last resort? He means that when even the courts have betrayed us, yes, even your Supreme Court, it falls to what he calls the constituent parts of the Union to defend the Constitution. What he meant by that? It's up to the states to stand up and resist abuses of power. There is a reason the Supreme Court is the last of the three branches to take a look at a bill which has now become a law. They're like the goalies. They're the last step to keep a law that's unconstitutional from being implemented. All right, Michael, now we're getting somewhere. If they're goalies, that means they play for a team. There have even been people sitting on the court who have wound up pursuing partisan political offices. For example, Charles Evans Hughes resigns from the bench to accept the Republican presidential nomination. But even beyond examples like that, when you play for a team, you're also playing for the league. We forget that although the Supreme Court every once in a while will side with you, the Supreme Court is part of the federal government. It's hardly an impartial arbiter. It's like if you and I were having a dispute and I said, now look, Michael, my mom is a really, really fair person. We'll take our dispute there. Well, it's not impossible that my mom might say, Tom, really, you were wrong in this case. 
but I highly doubt Michael would want to go into that arena. You had Earl Warren. He had been the Republican vice presidential candidate. He'd been governor of California. Teddy Roosevelt's opponent in 1904, Alton Parker. He had been a judge. William Howard Taft went from the president who got stuck in the bathtub to chief justice at the Supreme Court. So historically speaking, there wasn't any pretense that these men were just politicians. They were partisan politicians. And in fact, to this day, every so often someone say, oh, uh, they should have appointed Hillary Clinton to the Supreme Court, or Barack Obama, or even Michelle Obama. And just look at the way the Senate nomination hearings take place. That should make clear to anybody that none of these senators are looking for somebody who just has a solid knowledge of the law, who wants to apply it consistently and fairly. So if they ask about some particular legal theory, it's only because they think, if this person believes this theory, he'll probably support my whole legislative agenda. That's all this is about. So, Michael, returning to a level that even you can understand, let's talk about goalies again. Would you choose somebody from the other team to be your goalie? I don't know, Tom. Could it be your mom? Tom, is that another Bill sitting here in Capitol Hill? No, you midwit. That's James Madison. The basketball player? The father of the Constitution. The father of the Constitution? Yeah. Mr. Madison, why are you hanging around the Supreme Court? Madison wrote a report in 1800 about what the states can do when the federal government overstepped its bounds. He said the parties of the Constitution, by which he meant the states, had the power and the right to judge whether the Constitution had been dangerously violated. And the states' rights to do that extend to violations by the president, violations by the Congress, and violations by the courts. And of course, today's view is that the states have no authority whatsoever, and whenever we get screwed by any branch, well, like good losers, we're supposed to sit back and take it. So nobody listens to James Madison anymore. Or they pretend to, or they put him up on a pedestal, but they never mention the report of 1800. Uh, have you heard of this little something called the Civil War? Well, actually, Michael, it's not quite that simple. The Civil War had to do with secession, and you can argue about that. But it did not address the question of what is the role of the states in the union? Can they make judgments about constitutionality? We've seen that in our own day. State after state has legalized marijuana in complete defiance of the federal prohibition. And the tanks not exactly rolled in all these states. And the only time the Supreme Court has weighed in regarding medical marijuana, they sided, as usual, with the federal government saying the states had no right to do this. And the states said, duly noted, and went ahead and did it. So the spirit of James Madison is actually still very much alive today. So how did we get to this point? When did it change that the Supreme Court has gone from restraining the federal government to enabling it? Well, almost right away. So let's talk about one of the cases that we're all taught to revere that was actually decided clearly incorrectly. McCulloch versus Maryland, 1819. Almost nobody remembers the particulars of the case. That's not the part that matters. What matters is what the Chief Justice, John Marshall, had to say about implied powers. And in that decision, we hear the Chief Justice telling us that, of course, the federal government has powers beyond the ones expressly delegated to it in the Constitution. Now, Marshall knows this is not right. He was in attendance in Virginia at the Richmond Convention that ratified the U.S. Constitution, and he heard with his own ears supporters of the Constitution assuring everyone that this government will have only the powers, quote, expressly 
delegated to it. Tom, don't you think you're being a little unfair to John Marshall? No one cites those ratifying conventions. They're like a historical curiosity. Because, of course, if we did return to consulting the ratifying conventions, we might have to scale back federal power, and they don't want that. Okay, here's where we are. Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever. Everyone agrees when it comes to the Supreme Court that it's gotten too partisan and too political. Every single Supreme Court nomination is a nuclear bloodbath. So what can we do? We're not going to get the Republicans to be less partisan. We're not going to get the Democrats to be less partisan. But what we can do is make each Supreme Court justice nomination not as big a deal. How do you do that? Well, here's a new idea that people have been floating around. You add more Supreme Court justices. Just like there's 435 people in the House, so each individual House race doesn't matter that much in totality, it doesn't have to be nine Supreme Court justices. Now, lots of people have come forward endorsing this plan. Presidential candidates, prominent publications like the New York Times. So I'm not sure it's the right thing to do, but I am sure that this is a new idea that we should definitely consider. Come on, Michael, even you have to know this is not a new idea. It was tried in the 1930s under Franklin Roosevelt. And by the way, he started it off completely dishonestly. He more or less said, we have a lot of elderly justices on the court and they're having a difficult time keeping up with the workload. So how about if I add an extra justice for everyone on the court who's over age 70 and doesn't retire? Well, nobody really fell for that, and eventually he made things more or less clear by saying, in effect, look, I'm doing this because people on the court have this old-fashioned jurisprudence. And in English, that means they're striking down my laws. They're striking down the Agricultural Adjustment Act, the National Industrial Recovery Act, and I fear they're going to strike down a lot more. So he came out and said, we're going to add a bunch of new justices. Now, even though the Democrats totally dominated both houses of Congress at that time, the idea still didn't get any traction. And in fact, the Senate Judiciary Committee, speaking about the court packing bill, spoke this way about it. It is a measure which should be so emphatically rejected that its parallel will never again be presented to the free representatives of the free people of America. So if we're going to look at the Supreme Court as the final arbiter of what's constitutional, it seems pretty clear that having a president simply put in as many people as he wants that agree with him takes away the reason the Supreme Court's even there to begin with. In that case, it's not the judicial branch. It becomes the judicial department of the executive branch. And then in that case, what's the point of having it at all? What ends up happening is that the Supreme Court almost becomes like the president's cabinet. He or she gets a bunch of people that will do his bidding passed them through Congress, and now they're there to rubber stamp his legislation. And then in that case, whatever happened to your independent, impartial, judicial body? Let's talk about a soccer game. What if the coach says, look, my team's not doing well here. We have to make sure that the playing field is adjusted accordingly. But instead of having a level playing field, you put the field at an angle, so all the soccer balls are going downhill toward your side. Is that fair? Is that reasonable? Is that looking at the law objectively and honestly? Or is it forcing an outcome that you would want to have happen 
which is ostensibly not what the law and Supreme Court is supposed to be about. Just because you have a fire extinguisher in your house doesn't mean you should feel free to start fires to see how it plays out. We're talking about the Supreme Court today because a lot of people think about it the wrong way. They think it's an impartial guardian of American liberties, that it prevents government overreach, and that maybe a good idea these days might be even to expand the court to include more justices, and this would lead to better outcomes. Every one of these things needs to be gently smashed. It's funny, Tom. I guess people have two completely contradictory ideas in their minds all the time. One is that the Supreme Court is independent and objective and kind of the judge of the legislation passed and signed by the other two branches. But that they also understand that the Supreme Court might be the most hyper-partisan, hyper-political branches of all three. And a huge percentage of the votes for the presidency are based on who that person would nominate to the Supreme Court. Just because a man puts on a black dress, all of a sudden he's not supposed to be a partisan Republican or a hardcore leftist? Stop. Hammer time. Tom, what are you wearing? The Supreme Court reinterpreted me. All right, all right, what seems to be the problem? Things are terrible. Corporate profits have been negative for three years. Net private investment is negative. There's been a stock market crash. Okay, okay, sounds like depression. Real GNP per capita is down 30% in just four years. Unemployment is at 25%. In some places, it's even worse. Ah, okay, so this isn't just depression. This is the Great Depression. The Great Depression? Yes, the Great Depression. Yes, it's the worst economic disaster in American history. But we had FDR. We had the New Deal. That ship was righted. And America ends up becoming the economic superpower we all know and love today. No, that's not true at all. The Great Depression persisted all throughout the 1930s. On the eve of World War II, unemployment was nearly 20%, even after all the New Deal programs. And it wound up being the longest downturn in American history, not in spite of the government's involvement, but because of it. Let's start with something basic, like, you know, food. When FDR came into office, he's got this tremendous agricultural bounty, and because of all this food, prices on food keep falling. Wait, wait, you're telling me it's a problem during a depression that food has become cheap? I don't think it's a problem, but FDR did, because for the farmer, it's not good for prices to fall. So FDR's Agricultural Adjustment Act paid farmers to cut back on production or even to produce nothing at all. Less food means higher prices, so he paid farmers to destroy a huge amount of crops in order to raise prices to make farmers better off. So six million pigs were slaughtered. Ten million acres of cotton were destroyed. 
this sounds like a good idea, not the way you're spinning it. Because the government comes, it slaughters pigs from my farm, I'm the farmer, I get paid for the pigs, and then that meat, that pork, goes to feed poor people. No, the pork gets destroyed. The cotton gets destroyed. All this stuff got destroyed to pull it off the market and raise prices, not give it to poor people. Mules were actually employed to destroy cotton. They actually had mules stomp on the cotton. And at first they hesitated to do it because this is not what a mule normally does. They had to be forced to do it. The whole New Deal was about helping one group and then another group and then another group. Even though each time you help that one group, you're harming everybody else. And it turns out you didn't even help the farmers because other New Deal programs were even more successful driving up other prices, namely the prices of everything farmers buy. Yeah, but if prices are collapsing all around you for years, at a certain point, you want to mitigate that damage. But prices had been falling for about a century in American history, and the United States had become during that time the great industrial power of the world. So it's actually not a bad thing for prices to fall. And to the contrary, it's much worse to force them up by giving businesses the power to collude with each other so that all throughout an industry, nobody's allowed to sell below a particular price. Okay, so that's just for food. But the New Deal is about the whole nation and the whole economy recovering. So yes, yeah, some people are going to be negatively affected, but Americans had to make sacrifices in the hardest of times. It wasn't just for food. What I described was actually the thinking behind the National Industrial Recovery Act. And it worked more or less the same, making it harder for the poor to buy food, to get transportation, to be clothed and housed. The National Recovery Administration allowed businesses in each industry to establish a code of production, which would set working hours, wages, and prices. So, so what's wrong with that? It means that upstarts can't compete on price. The biggest businesses tend to prosper because if you're, say, a Goodyear tire, well, everybody already knows Goodyear tire. But if I'm Tom's tire, what's the only way I can compete with Goodyear tire? Not on name recognition, but on price. But now I can't sell at a lower price because under the National Recovery Act, the government won't let me. So FDR said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. But a generation the fear had been that... Big business monopolies in a certain industry are all going to get together and they're going to collude to jack up the prices and basically screw the population out of as much money as they can get away with. This was the nightmare concern of having an oligarchic system, that people are going to be at the mercy of these big trusts. And now they're codifying it into law? That's pretty much the case. The very thing we were taught to fear was now mandated by law. I still think that under extreme situations, maybe you have to rely on big companies and rely on stable prices in order to make sure to cut down on that sky-high unemployment and make sure everyone has a job. That's the problem that needs to be solved. A lot of people think of things like the Works Progress Administration when they think about the New Deal that gave people jobs. If we look at the work of economists John Joseph Wallace and Daniel Benjamin, 
They found that the jobs created by the WPA and the other New Deal spending programs either just displaced private sector jobs that existed already or actually destroyed those jobs because these programs just dried up capital that could have been used for private sector investment. And we now know, because of historian Bob Higgs, that business at the time really held off from investing because they didn't know what the federal government was going to do next, and nobody wanted to expose himself to an unpredictable federal government. So they just bided their time, and meanwhile the economy continued to suffer. What it boils down to is there were a lot of programs, but they all shared the same basic flaw, that a group of experts are going to direct resources better than you and I can. It sounds like what you're saying is there's lots of different symptoms, but they're all being treated with the same medicine, medicine that hasn't been shown to be effective in any single specific instance. So instead of focusing on treating symptoms, let's focus on preventative measures. If you have an economy based on capitalism, you inevitably have these depressions. They happen cyclically. So maybe the New Deal couldn't fix the situation because all those programs were just band-aids that didn't address the real cause. It's very easy and fashionable to say that, but actually depressions are not a natural feature of capitalism. This or that sector may go up and down, but system-wide collapses are foreign to capitalism without government intervention. Think of it this way. Imagine a master builder who has a blueprint to build a house, but he doesn't have enough resources to build the house that the blueprint calls for. So the longer he persists in working on it, the more resources and labor hours he wastes because the project will eventually have to be abandoned for lack of materials. The sooner he spots his error, the better. This is what happens with the economy as a whole when the Federal Reserve pushes interest rates down artificially. It gives entrepreneurs the idea that there are more resources available than there really are. The economy becomes too ambitious, embarking on long-term projects for which the necessary resources do not exist. We obviously don't want fiscal or monetary stimulus at a time like that, because that just encourages entrepreneurs to continue along this unsustainable path, rather than making them realize they need to abandon it and shift resources into more appropriate channels. Wait a minute, so you're saying it's like taking an energy drink and you're running around on that artificial high, but if you try to nourish yourself entirely on energy drinks with nothing else, you're going to crash and you're going to collapse. And that's what happened in the 1920s under Herbert Hoover leading up to the stock market crash. And one of the first things Hoover did was convene a meeting of big business leaders and urge them to keep wages stable, even at a time when prices are falling. To keep wages stable, you're basically trying to give everybody a raise during the worst economic downturn in American history. Not the best time for a raise, really. Right, because the businesses can barely afford to keep the workers they have at those wages that they're paying them when the prices are falling through the floor. So at a certain point, if those wages are kept high enough, everyone's going to lose their job because the business is going to go out of business. That's exactly right. And by the way, contrary to what most people have been told, Hoover did not sit on his hands. He had no problem spending money. He spent more on public works projects in four years than had been spent in the previous 20. His Reconstruction Finance Corporation gave emergency low-interest loans to failing businesses and then began to bail out the states, helping them pay for unemployment relief, fund public works projects, etc. And then let's talk taxes. 
The Smoot-Hawley tariff introduced tariffs, that is, taxes on imported goods, on over 20,000 products. And the idea was to have these taxes be so high that nobody in his right mind would pay them. Instead of buying a foreign product with these ridiculous taxes on them, you would just buy the American product, which could therefore be raised in price because you have nowhere else to go. Now, this disrupted international trade and hurt Americans because American trading partners retaliated when their products were basically shut out of U.S. markets. The Italian government doubled its tariffs on American cars in response to what the U.S. was doing to them. So American automobile sales in Italy fell by 90%. And then, just as the Depression is getting really bad, Hoover took the top marginal income tax rate and raised it from 25 to 63%. And then corporate taxes go up, estate taxes go up, gift taxes go up, as do taxes on cars, tires, gasoline, toiletries, electric energy, luxury items, bank checks, and even telephone, telegraph, and radio messages. So I might point out that at the time, his opponent in the 1932 election, Franklin Roosevelt, and Roosevelt's vice presidential nominee, Jack Garner, were criticizing him for this. Garner said Hoover is leading the country down the road to socialism. And Franklin Roosevelt himself didn't say, if only Hoover would spend more money. He called Hoover's the greatest spending administration in peacetime in all our history. So not exactly what you learned in the seventh grade textbook. Fine. I'll grant you that this was caused by government intervention in the economy and the currency far before FDR. And I'll grant you that the New Deal didn't stop the Great Depression, but FDR's president, when World War II comes along, and that's what finally got us out of the Depression and got everyone under full employment. People say World War II got the United States out of the Great Depression. Almost everybody thinks this, or at least thought it, until historian Bob Higgs came along and forced people to recognize the absurdities that are buried in this. It's true that if you take 22% of the labor force, 11 million people, conscript them into the army, unemployment goes down. Presumably, I don't need to draw you a diagram about that. But a healthy economy does not need to take 11 million people and risk having them all die. The problem with any kind of economic data is that you need to analyze it to understand what it's saying. So something may be factual, but it may not necessarily be truthful. So yes, it is factual that sending all the unemployed people overseas to war produced a drop in the unemployment rate. And it's factual that they're given food and clothing and shelter and helmets and guns and in one sense they're better off but it's not truthful to say that if your entire job consists of 24 7 being worried about having the nazis kill you that this can be considered normal employment this has nothing to do with whether or not you think world war ii was a good idea the question is what were its economic effects does it lift the country out of the great depression no it doesn't if war spending really made a country wealthy, then today maybe the U.S. and Japan should do the following. Each of us should build the most spectacular naval fleet in history, an enormous armada of gigantic, powerful, technologically advanced ships. Then these two fleets should meet in the Pacific. Now, obviously, we don't want to kill anybody, so we'll take all the naval personnel off 
and evacuate them. And at that point, the U.S. and Japan would sink each other's fleets. And then we could all celebrate how much richer we'd made ourselves by devoting labor, steel, and all these other inputs to producing things that would wind up at the bottom of the ocean. So if none of these programs and war ended up stopping the Great Depression, what are we supposed to do the next time the economy takes a downturn? Send our hands and do nothing? Well, pretty much yes. We've had this experience before. The Forgotten Depression of 1920 to 21, that was a downturn that in some ways was every bit as bad as the Great Depression. And yet by the time the hapless Warren Harding, I hate to call him that, he's a good guy, by the time it occurred to him to do anything about it, it was already over. Once the dislocations of World War II were behind us, and once it became clear that the federal government was not going to engage in any more ambitious reconstructions of America, investment resumed. Business came back out from hiding and prosperity returned. So when people talk about the Green New Deal, it's not new at all. They're invoking programs and principles that have been put into practice almost 100 years ago and programs and practices that often had very negative effects, sometimes even intentionally. A lot of people complain about they want to take us back to the 50s. Well, why would they want to take us back to the 30s? That's why this stuff matters even today. Because as you can see, a lot of people still draw inspiration from the New Deal. And it's what inspires a lot of really, really damaging ideas and policies today. Wait, wait, wait. If you know all this stuff, Mr. Smarty Pants, why are you in here with me? I'm not in here with you. You're in here with me. 